Oliver, our five-year-old, sat outside selling rocks the other day. He drew on them, he painted them, then he set up a little card table next to the road to display his little works of art. He did what he knew how to do. He offered to the world what he had to offer. He had some takers. People bought a few, they supported him, and then the madness began. He started asking who he could sell rocks to next. Could he knock on our lovely next door neighbor's door? More, more, more. What could he get enough money to buy? So <laughs> what started as a work of art and an idea became an obsession that went askew. <laughs> At one point, before things got a little crazy, I told him how cool of a kid I thought he was. And he said, I know. I know why I'm cool. Because I'm selling rocks. Yep. Cool kid. Isn't it always a tension between passion and money? Between making an impact and letting it impact us negatively? And I, I found that to be the most refreshing part of my conversation with Cyril Jefferson. He sees the tension. He understands that dynamic. How do you make a difference without becoming a shell of yourself or forsaking your family? Cyril is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Change Often, a social innovation firm. He started this organization because of a need to help people who need a leg up because of issues that are systemic or otherwise. He's also a city council member in the city where I live. Most of all, he's an impact maker, a leader in his family, amongst his friends, and the ripples that he makes extend a long way. This is the friends we meet. I used to do chorus as a Did you really? Kid, man, yeah. And actually, I was in elite chorus in my middle school. What does that mean? It was like for students who wanted to go to Carowinds and go to Six Flags. And stuff. Uh, so you had to you like, did that? You had to come like extra rehearsals. And she offered this opportunity that said, hey, if you want to be an elite chorus, we're going to travel. We're going to go to competitions. Where are we traveling? have a lot of fun. Yeah. Six Flags and Carowinds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were the two things I wanted to go to. I said, I'm in. Yeah. So because of those two things, I was like, oh, heck yeah. And so um, just being committed to that, man. And I, I remember being in chorus and singing all these songs that I didn't really want to sing, but it was, all the, it was this game that it was like, could we hit the harmonies? It was like a, a, it was like a puzzle. And I loved that about it because I, I, I would just, I couldn't always get it perfect, but I loved the process of working at it and working at it as a, as a team. And so I think it taught me a lot about, you know, teamwork and the whole thing, but I just didn't like getting dressed up and doing all that stuff. But yeah. The process, Evan, you know, you got me excited when you said that there, because when I think of, um, I think I think anything that really gets me the most excited it's the stuff that has this process of figuring it out, right? Like and a puzzle? There you go. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're the kind of person who loves puzzles, Sudoku, you start out, and whatever the piece is, for example, You Be Latte Deo, mm -hmm. that's one of the songs we sung. And I think it was Latin-based, mm -hmm. right? I think the actual You Be Latte Deo is like a joyous day or something like that, or Happy Day. That's where the song, Oh, mm -hmm. Happy Day, comes from, I think. You start out, and the first day you're in elite course practice, and she hands you a piece of music. All the words are in Latin, mm -hmm. 
all the rhythms are just, I mean, they're all over the place. She plays a song for you to hear and you see that it's so intense. The melodies are complex and the range of it, I mean, I'm gonna have to squeeze everything I've got to hit those notes. And you're like, sitting there on the first day, like, how the heck are we gonna do this? And everybody else is gonna have to do the same thing. And everyone else is gonna have to do the same thing. And it's that process of, yeah, I started not knowing how to do this and mm. didn't understand it and it's a new experience. And it wasn't like, you know, we just got lucky or, you know, it was like one thing that clicked. It was multiple things that we had to work on. We had to break it down and we had to commit to an excellence. Like there was no coming in and trying to have do it. There was coming in and saying, I want to be the very best I can be today. So I'm trying to figure out what it was that led you to say, this is a need that I feel like I can I can jump in the gap for, I can kind of bridge some divides, whatever metaphor you want to use. We got we to gotta do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, working in these fields, you see things and you see opportunities. And uh, perhaps the story that stands out to me is about a lost opportunity that also happens to fuel the reason why I went to public office as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, some years ago, I was, as a, you know, a, a youth development consultant, I was doing this work, working directly with students, and I was helping them with issues of behavior intervention, and it was this big initiative to reduce suspensions mm-hmm. and reduce the kind of behaviors that, you know, got students in trouble, kept them out of class, kept them from progressing in school. And I was given a caseload, and I was doing legitimate interventions. I mean, every week I was in there, you know, teachers would call me, I was mentoring, I was, you know, getting students connected with resources, building great quality relationships. And it was good work. And, um, you know, I think I was doing it really with such a, you know, just such a vigor and such a real passion for it that naturally students are drawn to that. And so actually my caseload would grow and grow and even got to the point where it was already beyond what it was supposed to be at when a young man came to me who I had known because he was working with another professional in the building who was doing similar work. And the student said, you know, I know I'm in this group over here, but I just honestly think I would connect better with you. I know I seem like a knucklehead and I'll often get in trouble, but I don't really want to do this the rest of my life. I mean, he had a real moment of, mm, of, of sincerity. Like clarity. And, um, you know, I did my best to follow the rule book, you know. Um, so I turned him down because I was told, you know, I could not expand my caseload anymore. They said, your capacity is going too big. We think it's bad to pull a kid from another group. It just doesn't look good. You're going to have kids want to jump groups all the time. Um, this, this can't work. You got to tell them no. So I, I turned him down. And... Uh, uh, you know, a few months later, man, I'm driving down the road and I get this phone call and I get informed that the same kid who was only 13, only 13, was hanging out with some guys 19, 20 years old and they went to go hit a lick. Now, hit a lick, for those who don't know what that means, it means you, you're essentially going to do a breaking and entering, rob somebody and essentially you're trying to, trying to steal what they have. That's what hit a lick means, right? Well, this young boy, so that's what he was at the age of 13, went with these 19, 20-year-olds. 
who he always hung out with because his mom was, you know, one of those ones in and out of prison. He didn't know his dad. Dad was in prison, had been killed, a number of things. Um, so he was hanging out with older kids because that's, that's what he did. And uh, <clears throat> they go to this guy's house based on information that the guy was not there. Well, lo and behold, the guy was there. And the guy, um, you know, confronts them. And he has a weapon in his hand. And the young man who I'm talking about, who was 13, happened to be the closest to the man. And he was met with a situation in which it was essentially be killed or to kill. Um, he pulled the trigger, the young man did, and killed the owner of that home. And um, it's such a terrible story because a man lost his life, but a young boy also lost his life because he went away to juvie, set to go to prison right after that, and he's been there now about eight years and not expected to get out this decade. Hmm. And needless to say, man, I mean, I was all types of disjointed, mm -hmm. discombobulated. I mean, I was in such a state of just insane outrage over what happened, insane outrage for my decision, hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, I had to, I had to lean on my wife at the time who encouraged me. <laughs> Thank God for soulmates who know mm -hmm. how to encourage you. Yeah. And, um, you know, she said, Cyril, you work with all these kids all over the city and you spend so much time helping them. And even though you wish you would have added him to your caseload, truth is, there's no way you could mentor and work one-on-one -on -one with every single kid out there who needs it. That's right. And she was right, Evan. She wasn't wrong. She was right. But, I don't know. I, it I doesn't take away the pain of it that, It doesn't though. take away the pain. And right. so, in my mind, I knew there had to be a way to have bigger and greater impact. Mm-hmm on a systems level, something that could be done sustainably, and something that could, quite frankly, encourage, provoke, and support the world mm -hmm. as we all move to this understanding that change can happen. And the people who need it the most are dependent on us believing in that change. Mm -hmm. And not only believing in that change, but delivering that change. And so for change often, you know, one of our mantras is, you know, dream and deliver. Hmm. And the only thing that should match your capacity to dream about social change should be our capacity to deliver that mm -hmm. social change. So as a firm, we're doing our best to specialize in that delivery. And that's also why I went into public office. Yeah. Um, you know, here in the city, this, yeah. this is where the young man was involved in. At the time, we had so many young people, you know, really giving themselves away to this culture of violence and, you know, being involved in gangs and things. Before and they can even comprehend. Before they can even yeah. comprehend. And, and, and truth be told, man, if, if we had enough time, you know, I, I'd give my opinion about, sure. about gangs where most people assume, you know, some kid someday just says, yeah, I think I want to um, go and, and, and disrupt 
and make a lot of people's lives hellacious. That's not. Yeah. That's not where it comes from. Heck, if you look at where gangs started, it's because in communities that were historically marginalized and oppressed, mm-hmm. where fathers were being incarcerated at extremely high rates, mm. where drugs were being proliferated by people who also would lock you up for the drugs, gangs started out really as a way to create a family outside community, of your family, family, a community. Yeah, protection. And even today, the kids who I used to teach, some of them who I still know, some of them who I mentor now, who I've helped leave the gang that they were in, kids who I love, mm-hmm. I pray with. Mm-hmm. When they need something, I support them and their families, and I'm proud of them for how they're growing. And they'll tell you they never, ever intended to get into gangs just because they got into gangs for protection. They got into gangs for, you know, really mm-hmm. support. They got into the gangs for the camaraderie. I mean, heck, they got into gangs for the same reason any of us would get into a family, mm-hmm. except we don't choose our families, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these kids didn't choose, sorry, none of these kids chose their families, mm-hmm. but they could choose a gang to mm-hmm. be supportive. And, you know, this isn't me justifying gang activity no. or any of that. This is just me helping folks understand, hopefully empathize, that no one starts out wanting to do terrible things. Right. And just like, you know, America right. <laughs> never intended to do terrible things overseas <laughs> with wars we were in. And this isn't me trying to go on some no, rant about American wars, but if we're going to crucify young kids for choosing the gangs that they're in and the violence that comes from it, I mean, America's always had a propensity for violence. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, you know, man, that's that's a whole nother story. Evan. But it, a, but it, <laughs> no, but it's, it's real, though, and it's I think I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's it's one of those things where we we also have a, a tendency to take a word and a side and to vilify the word, to take a word and make it mean something it doesn't, take something and build something yeah. different out of it. And it's like, how different would it be if, 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 if gangs, how, how much fear would be alleviated if, uh, if gangs were called, you know, middle school sororities and fraternities, you know what I mean? Because in a lot of ways, that is what, that is the, that is the chief aim yeah. of a lot of that is when you get into a big situation, it's like, who's got my back? How do who's I know that back? people got my back? How do I know that I'm in a family? How do I yeah. know that I've got a community? How do I know that I'm going to sit with somebody at the table down to the little brass tacks of life, you know? And, uh, and so when you describe it like that, I thought that was a really good way to put it because we don't know what problem we're fighting. Are we fighting just kids being in groups? Are we fighting kids being violent? Are we fighting kids breaking into places? Or are we fighting just ourselves because we have the same propensity to want to be in those communities? Yeah. And if we were in that situation, we'd be in the same things, same right? Thing. I mean, and so when you talk about those situations, Evan, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, right? I think, <clears throat> and this is something with change often, we, we really we really push to the forefront, and that is human-centered solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to ever get together and brainstorm or do any kind of research about how we can fix the problems that are here, and as we begin to propose good solutions and we cultivate these solutions and deliver these solutions, the whole process, the whole ideology, 
Mm-hmm. It has to be human-centered. Mm-hmm. And that requires empathy. Mm-hmm. That requires first saying the problems that we are trying to solve are for people just like you and me. Mm-hmm. For people that if I were in their shoes, I would likely have done the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we think of many issues in our world where we run up against so much conflict is that the distance and the framing of a group of people allows us to marginalize them and make them others. And we say, well, they're in that situation because they've been making bad decisions and because there's got to be some justifiable reason why I didn't do it. Clearly, I'm the better person because I made better decisions. And, I mean, if I could go as far as saying how asinine that is, I mean, who hasn't made a mistake hmm. or made a decision, willingly made the decision, but you felt like this was the predicament you were in, hmm. whether it was, you know, a relationship or leaving a job or a very bad expense, right? These can seem certainly more novel and even more sort of first world than some of the other issues that we're talking about here. But I think a human-centered way of approaching it really allows us to say, what are the underlying things that contribute to decision-making? What's the environment like? What's the history of it? To go back to the gang thing, where people feel like they need protection, I mean, you're talking about gangs started at a time in which if I can just be honest, mm-hmm. black and brown communities did not feel like law enforcement was there to serve and protect. And this is not a knock on law enforcement. I thank, God for our, right. yeah. I, I thank God for our officers and what they do and how they put their lives on the line every single day. Same with the soldiers who fight for America and all of our freedoms. I thank God for them. Mm-hmm. For my dad, for my brothers, for my grandfather who was an officer in, um, in law enforcement and in the military. I, I thank God for every single one of those people. But we as a community for generations have dealt with quite frankly Mm -hmm. police brutality and we can dress it up in whatever language we want to dress it up in but that's the history and how do you say to a people uh you got to just trust that law enforcement's got you and you got to just get over it I, I, i don't know do you do you say to any other group that's been marginalized and oppressed get over it or do we not celebrate them for remembering things Do we not celebrate that? I mean, heck, can you imagine telling an American, get over 9-11? I wouldn't dare say that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we ever will get over 9-11. It's probably a good thing that we don't get over 9-11 because it's made us more aware of the dangerous threats that are out there. Mm -hmm. Jews don't get over the Holocaust. And thank God, not only do they not get over it, but constantly we need to remember it because when we see that sort of fascist attitude Mm -hmm. rear its head again, we have to be able to see that and address it. And so where we talk about the mistrust that comes from abused powers and privileges that have caused people to not feel that they can be protected, we cannot simply ask them to get over it. We can support as we all look to find better solutions there and build better relationships, but also have a healthy awareness of why that mistrust is there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And a healthy awareness that says, If we're not supporting law enforcement officers, heck, I happen to believe that no person who puts on the badge puts it on saying, I want to go ruin someone's life. Mm -hmm. I don't think they ever think that. They put it on knowing that their lives are on the line, but it's a noble cause. If we, again, 
with a very human-centered approach attempt to empathize with one another, we'll find more common ground and the solutions, I think, they're there. So with that, it's, it seems to me that what you have is like a dual, a two-sided coin. One is lacking hope and, and kind of dissipating hope. And the other side of that is a growing cynicism mm -hmm. at the same time. It's kind of like a twofold thing where mm -hmm. it's uh, both of those exist. How do you how do you deal with that when you're dealing with people who have been disenfranchised or mm -hmm. people who have you know been through the ringer? Um, how do you how do you um, how do you encourage a police officer who has uh, who has experienced stuff that he didn't want to experience? He's seen stuff that he didn't want to see, and now he's growing cynical to build walls to protect himself. Mm -hmm. How do you encourage someone who hasn't been given a leg up with business so they're lacking hope? Yeah, you know, it, it feels like it's a. It feels like there's these sides, but it mm -hmm. feels like also that um, if they were close enough, they could empathize pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying. You're saying it exactly right, Evan. Right? If people can be close enough to the problems and close enough to each other to have the conversations, it can make a world of difference. I mean, we don't have to focus on assigning blame, but if we assume the responsibility, assume the collective responsibility of addressing issues, then that's how we move forward together. I think as a world, we get better when we do our best to empathize with human-centered solutions mm. and be very clear that it is our collective responsibility to build a better world. So we're going to take a break for just a second. We have incredible sponsors. This podcast would not be possible without the following. The Flywheel Press, designing and printing luxury stationery so you can make lasting connections with others. Visit The Flywheel NC on Instagram or their website, theflywheelnc.com. Esser CPA. They deliver high-quality accounting, tax, HR, and operations support to individuals, small businesses, and not-for-profits. Go to EsserCPA.com. E-S-S-E-R-C-P-A.com. The Budding Artichoke, a local artisan food market focused on sustainable foods and health products. You can find them on any social media. And a special gift sponsorship from an anonymous donor has asked you to check out Growing High Point. This is a nonprofit organization with a mission to create a dynamic and vibrant city by providing access and agricultural opportunities to High Point, North Carolina residents. Check them out. Growing High Point. You mentioned losing your dad, and I don't want to harp on that if that's not something that, that you harp on, but um, how did that change you trajectory-wise? So I'm actually coming up on the three-year anniversary mm -hmm. of my father's passing. So February 12th, 2019, mm -hmm. um, I get a phone call, and it's right as I'm walking into John Coltrane's childhood home mm -hmm. here in Highpoint, right over off of Washington Street on Underhill, 118 mm -hmm. Underhill Street. And I was walking in that house because I chaired the Coltrane Project, right? is to look at that house, look at John Coltrane's legacy, to look at all the many ways in which we intersect with that history and find ways to continue to, to, to stand on that, do great things here in our city. Mm -hmm. So we have facilitated this stakeholder tour of the house and meetings to get great input about some things we could do. 
And um, and I'm, I'm the one who convened the meeting. I'm literally walking in the house as I get a call from my stepmother. And at first I declined it because I'm like, I got to go in and support me. I, you know, I can't talk to her right now. And then she calls again. And I'm like, okay, let me just see because she doesn't normally even call me that much. And uh, so I answered it, and that's when she gave me the news. Um, hmm. So I left the house and, um, you know, called my wife and, my mother and um, went home and, you know, they helped console me um, just during that immediate shock period, right? Because it's like, what the, mm-hmm. you know, just completely unexpected. My father was not sick. Mm-hmm. He actually passed from a massive heart attack. You know, this is 2019. So to set the stage for you, this is really just seven months before the election begins mm-hmm. for city council. Early voting mm-hmm. was to start seven months later. In fact, seven months to the day I was burying or uh, funeralizing my father was the first day of early voting. And so what that actually triggered in 2019 was seven months of just incredible, an incredible journey, Evan. Uh, you know, my, my father passed and shortly after that, by the summertime, I'd also lost my grandmother, mm-hmm. which is my dad's mother and then my grandmother's brother-in-law, so my great-uncle, who I had known ever since I was born. I mean, he's as good as blood as anyone. Mm. So three family members passed. Uh, I was also working here at a local agency in which, you know, I was working in the school system, doing some good work, and, you know, they'd ask, hey, do you think you're coming back next school year? And I said, you know, I really don't know. Council's coming up. I mean, this election, I know I want to focus on that. And they said, well, you know, we kind of want to make some, some decisions to get ready for a school year. They came back and said, hey, we just decided we don't really know what you're doing, but we want to do some other things with the budget. We're thinking that this position will be cut down to part-time. If you want to stay, if that works for you, here's what it looks like. But honestly, just the situation wasn't favorable for mm-hmm. the time and money. It was just like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. So I effectively lost a job, right? Um, I also, you know, you go a couple months. Um, I'm getting this car wreck, a traumatic car wreck. I mean, you know, I'm not the p- most perfect driver in the world, mm-hmm. but at this moment, I was doing most perfect driver stuff. Mm-hmm. Two hands on the wheel, mm-hmm. phone in my pocket, mm-hmm. seatbelt on, driving the speed limit, just heading to go get some lunch. Mm. Young man, a teenager, rolled through his stop sign, did not see my truck, T-boned me which caused my truck to slam into the curb, which caused it to then tip and flip. And it rolled several times, man. And that bad boy was, talk about an experience. I mean, it was like a movie. In the moment, I was just like, what the heck is going on? And that totaled my truck and messed up my back and some other things. And I had to end up going to a doctor for treatment for months just to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Mind you, trying to get ready for a campaign season, right? And this is all 2019. All 2019, man. Um, this is pre-COVID, man. This, this wasn't even 2020 this, this yet. You can't even blame it on 2020. Yeah. It wasn't even 2020. Shoot. Um, also, in that same year, though, some pretty spectacular things were happening. I had won this citywide award for Young Professional of the Year mm-hmm. with the Chamber of Commerce. I announced my big campaign about running for city council, which was well-received. I mean, newspapers picked it up. and Social media had all these shares. I mean, it was stuff was, like, for me, viral, right? Mm-hmm. Probably for someone big, it wasn't considered viral. But anyways... I mean, it was but all it was types of feedback, excitement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I ended up, uh, my wife and I ended up buying our first home, mm-hmm. right? We ended up closing on that home. 
Um, Man, these are not stressful times at all. I mean, literally, <laughs> talk about highs and lows. Golly. 2019 did not throw anything mm-hmm. center plate. Everything was high or low. Yeah. So you can imagine going through that year. I mean, for me, it was just a period of yeah. of faith. I'm going to be honest yeah. with you. I grew so close to God in 2019. Mm-hmm. I had already been a man of faith, already working in church, often, you know, as a young minister. I, I, I was actually licensed back in 2013 to preach the gospel. And so I, I had had I, what I consider to be a deep relationship with God. But there's nothing like that kind of journey that just draws you even closer. Yeah. I mean, talk about, I'm being transparent here, moments mm-hmm. at night, not knowing what's going to happen next, you know, not having that father to call on. You know, dealing with pain in my body because of my back. Lost a job. I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do. You know, finances are struggling a little bit. Wow, the stresses of running for an election that, you know, there were, I mean, allegations started coming out from people about all types of things. Like, you know, oh, this person is, you know, Cyril's not really for his community. He's, I mean, people thought I was like a spy sent in Mm. by some elites to, to sabotage stuff. And I was like... Where do you guys make the stuff up? They thought someone had hired me to run. And I'm like, if you saw my bank account, you wouldn't be saying this. Like, what's going on here? Dude, it was, I mean, I had nights, man, where I'd be on the floor praying, heck, praying slash crying. Because I was just like, I don't, I'm going to be honest, I'm in a period in which I don't know what to do, don't know who to talk to, and I'm just stuck. Hmm. And it was a moment in which the Lord really just spoke to my heart. One of those things in which it wasn't about the situation having to define where my faith would be, but rather me choosing to believe everything is going to be all right. And I won't be moved by what I see. I'll only be moved by what I believe. Hmm. And that's it. Because the world wasn't created by what God saw. He created the world by what he spoke. He spoke what he believed. And in that moment... I just was determined, I'm not moved by what I see anymore. I'll have pain. Hmm. Circumstances will suck. Things will happen. But here's what I believe. And here's what will happen. The Lord just resurrected me. Hmm. Like, I was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this crying stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. I will be okay. That's good. And uh, it's not to say that it hasn't been trials and bumps since then, but when you ask about my father passing, what that often signals for me is that month hmm. that... You know, one day, I mean, you and I are talking, and, and, and I'll talk about that year and some other sort of symbolism there that was on my heart. But it was really like a chapter that had closed and a new chapter that opened. And, um, yeah, man, that's, that's it. Our team really can't do this podcast without you. We have a whole group, a community, really, of people who support this podcast financially to make sure that it happens. Each episode might be free to listen to, but it's not cheap, to paraphrase Austin Cleon. If this podcast adds value to your life, I would appreciate your support at any level. Join this group of people who makes this happen. Go to patreon.com slash thefriendswemeet. That's where you'll find the behind-the-scenes stuff, and that group gets the longer, raw audio interviews that don't fit on the episode and all that stuff. That's patreon.com slash thefriendswemeet. How did you meet your wife? 
we went to the same high school, Andrews High School, right okay. here in town, about seven minutes away from here. I met her first day, freshman year. Uh, she had on pink, green, white Nikes. I thought she was fly, man. I thought she was fly. I actually was with um, my friend Leo, and uh, we were in the marching band together, Leo and I. We were both on the drum line, and we had on our half of our band uniforms because we had a band performance early in the morning on Fox 8 News. We had a pet rally that day during school, and we had a football game that night. It was like a big rivalry. It was a big day. With Ben L. Smith High School, I'll never mm -hmm. forget, because that was my first week in the band. I had come to band camp kind of late. Um, and also, my mom had just remarried, so we moved from Winston-Salem to High Point. Mm -hmm. So now, I am inserted in a world in which I do not know a lot of people. Uh, I've only been here a week because of band camp. I'm tired as crap because I woke up at 4 o'clock to be on the news at 5.30, right? And um, Leo's, you know, we're walking to the same part of the school because our class is in the same direction. I'm like, y'all know how to get here. He's like, no, I got you. It's this way. And so he meets his girlfriend on the way, and his girlfriend named Lee happened to have a great friend named Raven. They were best friends at the time, and uh, I had the chance of meeting her then. And, man, our first conversation, she said, y'all are band geeks. <laughs> she called us band uh -huh. geeks. And I said, man, this... This woman, the audacity to call me a bangy. Does she not know what I did in band camp this past <laughs> week? <laughs> Funny thing is, a year later, she joined the band as a majorette. <laughs> and then uh, it's so funny because we, we, years later, um, we get married. Um, and, you know, we didn't actually date in high school. We were just friends. Okay. We were just, we ended up growing to be like really good friends, like brother and sister. I'd come to her games and support her and all types of things. Her mom, my mom, good friends. Um, it was halfway through college, actually, hmm. in which we um, began to date. And two and a half years later, we got married. That's um, awesome. And uh, we both started teaching the marching band. And okay. I always make that joke back to her now about, you know, who's the band geek now? That's right. right. I know so, I am, but you are too. Yeah, you're in now. You're in. How does your wife keep you humble? You see me smiling, man. I, what, what, what do you mean keep me humble? <laughs> what do you mean? No, I mean, I'm, I'm for real. Like, it, it is the hardest thing. You see it happen all the time where people, um, they, they have big vision, big vision, big vision, and then people trust them and people trust them, and then they get further away from the thing that they're trying to help. And so how, do you, how does your wife keep you grounded? How does your family keep you grounded? Tell me about your family. Yeah, yeah. So, so first, I got to say, I married above my weight class. Mm -hmm. I love my wife. I knew that by looking at you, and I knew that by <laughs> when you walked in the room, I was like, ah, this got married up completely. <laughs> Uh, I married above my weight class. If I could, I'd put her on my resume and hand that in. And, man, opportunities galore. But that's just not how the world <laughs> works. Um, <clears throat> you know, my wife and my family, you know, thank God that, that all of us as people of faith understand our collective responsibility for making the world a better place and the many roles that we can all play in, in that. And, um, you know, we've got two healthy, strong, smart boys that we love with our whole heart. And we're doing our best to chain them up according to what the good book says, right? You chain them up in the way that they should go. How old are they? They will not depart. 
Um, our boys are four and five. Okay. Four and five. So they're they're right at that. Oh gosh. That precipice of learning about the world, yeah. right? My five year olds in kindergarten, and every day he comes home with new knowledge. And my four year old, um, you know, he gets to benefit being of you know sixteen months younger than his brother, um, but he gets to see and learn everything from his brother. And um, obviously, they get into into you know their arguments and tussles, but they also love each other like no one else's business, man. So. Yeah, I, my my family's awesome. To to the point of, you know, I agree. Humbling is an important thing. Like how do you stay low to the ground? And how do you not allow yourself with visions and efforts and status to kind of go beyond so much of that that you forget really what brings you back here? When you talk about sort of this humbling um, piece, which is so important, right, because uh, – to your point, someone has a vision and uh, you can easily forget what the mission is and sort of your pursuit of all of that. And that's a great question because me and my wife talk about it, right? To, to affect change, really, as you say, to affect the systems and create sort of this sustainability, you've got to operate where decision-making happens. You've got to be able to influence other influencers. Um, and so where we operate most times ends up being in the boardroom or in the city council chambers or on the campaign trail in those ways. But where we've been able to sort of come together and, and, and stay as close to the problem as possible is really just staying connected to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's sure. some easy thing to do. No, it's we, we do have to be intentional about that, right? We have to be intentional, uh, for example, for the young men that I still mentor, staying very connected. Mm-hmm. Um, I've invested time in them, and even though they're adults now and they're on a better track, we have that kind of relationship where, you know, I don't just pull out of life like that. Um, mm. And I think in many other ways how we can stay connected to our community, whether it's through church or showing up at my boys' soccer game and making conversation or in the grocery store making time when someone's, hey, you, you know, I want to talk to you about something. You know, it may be 6.15 and I'm trying to get home with broccoli because my wife's making dinner. But at that time, if a constituent or resident of our city has something they want to talk about, I mean, I take the responsibility at that moment to listen and to engage. Um, because if I don't do it, who will, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's why we were elected. And um, otherwise, as you said, you can get too distant mm-hmm. from the people who you're trying to do your best to serve. Is it hard to set parameters like family stuff? There's time that we spend away from our kids, probably probably more than, than average yeah. uh, parents maybe have to, but um, we try to make it as quality as possible. And yeah, yeah. one thing that is important to us is bedtime, because uh-huh. um, bedtime is when we, you know, we're sort of reconciling the day, and you know, we're brushing mm-hmm. teeth, we're giving bath, we're asking them what they learned, and they're talking back to us, and you know, they they've got discoveries in the brain that they want to talk through. Mm. Cyril. Uh, the second, my son wants to ask math questions, and Royce wants to notice that that is shaped like a banana with legs, and you know they they want to do all this talking, and that's an incredible time as they're reconciling the day as they get ready to lay their heads down. I mean, mm-hmm. we go and we read books, we do prayer, we you know may do some flashcards, something like that, and that's just an, such an important time for us. And even in that span, it may mm-hmm. only be like forty five minutes to an hour in total for what that is, but. Um, that's precious time to us 
and we try to make our most we, we try to make the most out of that time and trying to consistently have that time mm. um, where we don't we don't just rush them home and say all right guys get in bed we try to make sure you know they've had a long day too mm. they've got the busy job of being four and five year olds trying to make sense it's of real. this world right the struggle is real the struggle is real and um, yeah like what you said like they have the hard work of being four and five year olds. That's hard work. And it is hard work. Don't ask me to be four and five again. I know. I might not make it out. (laughs) But, I mean, can you imagine how much they're thinking about all day long, every day? Um, It's it's really cool to hear about your faith, and it's cool to hear about how how your backbone has has grown stronger, but also the fact that you kind of do it with this, um, this vulnerability of knowing that life is fleeting and 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 vulnerable and 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 delicate but you're going to still push you know and so i like that i like that and so I, i'm impressed by you with that i appreciate that evan i um i think that's what's required of us quite frankly mm-hmm. like you know my angelo talks about life ain't no no crystal stair right mm-hmm. and i don't think life was ever intended to be that but I happen to believe that God's a covenant keeper. Yep. And that covenant he keeps is that all burdens that are heavy for us, he'll carry it. And I just choose to believe he's carrying it. And that whatever moment I'm in, he's got to be with me. Cyril, thank you. Thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for for having a conversation with me. Thanks for uh, being willing to sit down. And I think you're a remarkable person um, without being the director of an organization that is changing lives and being a part of that without um, even being a city council member. I think you're a remarkable person without those titles. But, man, it certainly is really cool to to see uh, it playing out in a really tangible way. You know, um, my last question is, Cyril, what is what is uh, what are some of your goals for the next two years? Um, or change, next month, you know, the next month, uh, <laughs> change, change often wants to continue doing impactful work and we want to grow that. And, you know, our team now is, um, you know, we've got over a dozen team members part-time, full-time contractors here across the state, also working globally. Um, Our firm's grown quite a bit, but we want to continue moving the needle in terms of some of these issues. And we want to be able to shift hearts and minds of people when it comes to social impact. Um, So that's that's one goal, be able to really do that in an effective way. And probably another one that's really just close to home, you know, my wife and I, you know, our family's young. In two years, you know, you talk about our boys will have to be seven and six. So um, as bland as this sounds, I think for us, we want to get through the next two years ensuring that we're really investing in them and investing in our marriage and investing in our home in a meaningful way. Um, Because that's, I mean, that's, that's life, right? So that's all. Thanks, man.
We are hosted on Transistor FM. They have been flawless to work with. Amazing community of other podcasts. Highly recommend them. Many of our episodes in this season are recorded at Congdon Yards in High Point, North Carolina. And this is a Human People Creative Production. Encouraging remarkable people to turn beautifully polished and far-fetched ideas into gritty and impactful realities. And thanks to you for being a listener, aka a person who listens. You took the time, and I hope it added something special to you. Human People Production.